When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an ode to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable. History as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong, or in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends, and thank you for coming back. Listen as I tell you that unofficially, America has already had what might be called a first lady president. At least according to some historians and biographers of the controversial woman in question. And she certainly was not elected by anybody except 
well, maybe her husband. Thomas Woodrow Wilson was born on December 28, 1856, to a family of Scotch-Irish and Scottish descent in the Appalachian Mountains of Stanton, Virginia. He was the third of four children and the first son of Joseph Ruggles Wilson and Jesse Janet Woodrow. He grew up to be an American politician and academic who served as the 28th President of the United States from 1913 to 1921. President Wilson served as the President of Princeton University and as the 34th Governor of New Jersey before winning the 1912 presidential election. As president, Wilson led the United States into World War I in 1917. His wife Ellen's health declined after he entered office and doctors diagnosed her with Bright's disease on July of 1914. Bright's disease is a historical classification of kidney disease that would be described in modern medicine as acute or chronic nephritis. She died on August 6, 1914. The president was deeply affected by the loss and fell into a deep depression. Then, on March 18, 1915, he met Edith Bowling Galt at a White House tea gathering. Edith Bowling was born October 15, 1872 in Withville, Virginia, also in the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Appalachia. She was born to Circuit Court Judge William Holcomb Bowling and his wife Sarah Sally Spears. Her birthplace, the Bowling Home, is now a museum located in Withville's historic district. Edith had little formal education and what she had was taught to her by her grandmother, Ann Wigington Bowling. Grandmother Bowling oversaw her education, teaching her how to speak a hybrid language of French and English. She taught her how to make dresses and instilled in her a tendency to make quick judgments and hold strong opinions, which were personality traits that she would exhibit through her entire life. While visiting her sister in Washington, D.C., Edith met Norman Galt, who was a prominent jeweler of Galt Brothers. The couple married on April 30th, 1896, and lived in the capital for the next 12 years. In 1903, she bore a son who lived only a few days. The difficult birth left her unable to have more children. Then, as if things weren't bad enough, in January of 1908, her husband, Norman Galt, died unexpectedly at the age of 43. Edith hired a manager to oversee his business and paid off his debts, and with the income left her by her late husband, she toured Europe. So after several meetings with President Wilson, President Wilson fell in love with Edith, and he proposed marriage to her on May of 1915. Now, Ms. Galt initially rebuffed him, but... Uh, president was undeterred and continued to courtship. Edith gradually warmed up to the relationship and they became engaged in September of 1915. They were married on December 18, 1915 and President Woodrow Wilson joined John Tyler and Grover, Grover Cleveland as 
the only presidents to marry while in office. In 1917, the world was at war, a war that President Wilson had attempted to keep the United States out of. In January of that year, the Germans initiated a new policy of unrestricted submarine warfare against ships in the seas around the British Isles. German leaders knew that the policy would likely provoke U.S. entrance into the war, but they thought they could defeat the Allied powers before the U.S. could fully mobilize. In late February, of the U.S. public learned of the Zimmerman Telegram, a secret communication in which Germany sought to convince Mexico to join it in the war against the United States. After a series of attacks on American ships, President Wilson held a cabinet meeting on March 20th of that year. All cabinet members agreed that the time had come for the United States to enter the war. Cabinet members believed that Germany was engaged in a commercial war against the United States and that the United States had to respond with a formal declaration of war, which followed on April 6, 1917. By the end of September 1918, the German leadership no longer believed it could win the war, and Kaiser Wilhelm II appointed a new government led by Prince Maximilian of Baden. Baden immediately sought an armistice with President Wilson with a conditional German surrender. The White House procured agreement to the armistice from France and Britain, but only after threatening to conclude a unilateral armistice without them. Germany and the Allied powers brought an end to the fighting with the signing of the armistice of 11 November 1918. After the signing of the armistice, President Wilson traveled to Europe to lead an American delegation to the Paris Peace Conference, thereby becoming the first president to travel to Europe while in office. The delegation consisted of President Wilson, Colonel House, Secretary of State Robert Lansing, General Tasker H. Bliss, and diplomat Henry White. Save for two-week return to the United States, the president remained in Europe for six months, where he focused on reaching a peace treaty to formally end the war. Folks, this traveling back and forth across the Atlantic was still done by ship, as there was no planes capable of crossing the Atlantic, and at that time it was a tiring journey to make indeed. The conference finished negotiations on May 1919, at which point the German leaders viewed the Treaty of Versailles for the first time. Some German leaders favored repudiating the treaty, but Germany signed the treaty on June 28, 1919. To bolster U.S. support for the ratification of the treaty, President Wilson barnstormed the western states, but he returned to the White House in late September due to unexpected health problems, and he had suffered about with what was thought to be the Spanish flu while in Europe to start with, and probably hadn't regained his strength yet. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. On October 2, 1919, the president suffered a serious stroke, leaving him paralyzed on his left side and 
with only partial vision in his right eye. And this, my good friends, is where it really gets interesting. He was confined to bed for weeks and sequestered from anybody except his wife and his physician, Dr. Carrie Grayson. Anxious to help the president recover, Dr. Grayson and the first lady determined that documents the president read and who was allowed to communicate with him would go through them. Edith firmly stepped in and began making decisions, consulting with physicians she would not even consider making her husband resign and have the vice president take over. That would only depress her husband, she thought. Her loving dedication to protect him by whatever means were necessary might have been admirable for a love story, but in declaring that she only cared about him as a person, not as a president, Edith decided that she and the president came before the normal function of the executive branch of government. The first move in establishing what she called her stewardship was to mislead the entire nation from the cabinet and Congress to the press and even the people. Vetting the carefully crafted medical bulletins that were publicly released, she would only permit an acknowledgement that the president needed, badly needed rest. When individual cabinet members came to confer with the president, they went no further than the first lady. If they had policy papers or pending decisions for him to review, edit, or approve, she would first look over the material herself. If she deemed the matter pressing enough, she took the paperwork into her husband's room where she claimed that she would read all the necessary documents to him. It was a bewildering way to run a government, but the officials waited in the West Setting Room hallway for her to come back out. When she came back to them, after conferring with the president, Mrs. Wilson turned over the paperwork, now which was riddled with indecipherable margin notes that she said were the president's transcribed verbatim responses. To some, the shaky handwriting looked less like that written by a nearly completely incapacitated man and more like that of his nervous caretaker. This is how she described the process she undertook. So began my stewardship. I studied every paper sent from the different secretaries or senators and tried to digest and present it in tabloid form, the things that, despite my vigilance, had to go to the president. I myself never made a single decision regarding the disposition of the public affairs. The only decision that was mine was what was important and what was not, and the very important decision of when to present matters to my husband. Luckily, the nation faced no great looming crisis for the period of what time which was dubbed her regency of one year and five months. From October 1919 until March 21st, or March 1921, still some of her confrontations with officials had serious consequences. When she heard that the President of State, or Secretary of State, I'm sorry, had convened a cabinet meeting without President Wilson's permission, she considered that an act of insubordination, and he was fired. The most damaging and irony, however, came as a result of 
Mrs. Wilson's insistence that a minor British embassy aide be fired for a bawdy joke he'd cracked at her expense, or else she would refuse the credentials of an ambassador who had come to specifically help negotiate for President Wilson's version of the League of Nations, which was now on the table. The ambassador refused to do so and soon returned to London. For all of the protection she had provided her husband, as a person, Edith may well have damaged what he dreamed for his legacy. Until her death in 1961, the former first lady insisted that she never assumed the full power of the presidency. At best, she used some of its prerogatives on behalf of her husband. Modern experts in the field of medicine have reviewed President Wilson's condition based on what is now known about the type of stroke that he had. The consensus among them is that there was no way that the president would have been functioning in a cognizant level for quite some time after his stroke. So we are left with our speculation based on their findings. Was the president's wife an Appalachian Mountain girl? Actually, the first woman president of the United States for over a year. I say that there's really a good chance that that's exactly what happened, wouldn't you? I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe, please. Please go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com and search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend and give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to choose from, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Mountain Hillbilly. Or you can go to the Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast where we can discuss everything in Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend. I'm Larry Bentley, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.